bad and bullshit. Welcome to the Bad and Bitchy Podcast. I'm Erin. And I'm Erica. Erica, happy election season. Fuck it. <laughs> I hate it already. Same. It's uh, one weekend and uh, we're we're back here. It's August and I don't, I would rather it be September if we were recording. I'd like some summer. Yeah. No. And that's, that's why I'm upset. The little bit of sunshine and freedom we have was snatched away by the Grinch of election present. <laughs> Uh, so we're kicking off our election 44 coverage with our favorite white male. <laughs> Seriously? He's the, he's the only repeat. He's the only repeat. Uh, David Mossgrop. Thanks for joining us. That's so nice to be here as your favorite and token. Uh, so white, so male. Man, uh, it's it's just it's just very lovely, and I also want to very quickly echo the fact that I um, resent losing my summer a little bit, but I actually resent what I resent the most is the election intruding into pumpkin spice season, of which I'm a a, a bit of a devotee, and so it's, oh. it's it's messing with my basic pumpkin fall crispy season vibe, <laughs> and I, I it's I'm a little bit irritated about that. So I have a follow up question to that. Um, how yep. does pumpkin spice season square with your general um geico caveman vibe it seems a little anachronistic no it, it, you can still drink a pumpkin spice latte with a beard you just can't drink it in public okay <laughs> okay. okay you know and uh, i but i really like the fall and i really i, I it's i think that i have a higge proclivity that sort of transcends seasons. It's, I think it peaks in the fall, but I, I really like that vibe. But you can also get it at Christmas too, of course. Um, so I want all of the gourds and I want the colors and I want the pumpkin stuff and so on and so forth. And the election just throws off because it's very jarring. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And you're always on, and all, everything's ramped up and it's very hard to get into a sort of like a Hege zone. Right, especially because someone like you who is you know, a columnist you're just going to follow everything. Whereas, you know, our listeners, for example, can maybe kind of tune out if they need to. And should. Yes. <laughs> Cannot recommend strong enough. The, the, one, the, the great virtue of, of representative democracy is that you can do other things with your life. I think we should have more participatory democracy, but still people are not first and foremost political bots. They're human beings with commitments to other human beings and passions and so on. It's nice to be able to pursue those. I someday w- hope to become one of those people. <laughs> uh, all Not right. today, though. Not today. Not today. Not all today. right. So let's just get started with like a general state of the parties. What are we? What are we thinking now that we're we're in election season? How do we think things are looking? You know, the liberals called the election because they were kind of up in the polls with all of the pandemic relief that they've provided. Um, but, you know, it, it, it seems as though summer maybe wasn't the best time or maybe August wasn't the best time to call this election only because, you know, people feel like their lives are kind of back to normal. Or there's a little bit of pandemic fatigue sitting in. Do and- they think, wait, 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 do they think their lives are back to normal? 
Oh, some people. Well, if, more than like it, they previously have. You can okay, more, more than in the past like year and a half. Okay, yeah, got yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I mean, there are things you can do now that, that you couldn't before. And of course, the vaccine changed a lot of things. And even someone like me who was inside quite yeah. literally for the vast majority of a, of a year, I now go out and do things. I follow the rules, but I, I feel fine. And I think there's a lot of people who just sort of feel fine. They're a little maybe discomforted because they've got to follow, you know, put them, put on a mask, keep a distance, but it's like, ah, you're vaccinated. The vast majority of people who are vaccinated are safe from serious infection. That's got to be a nice boost, right? I didn't say it wasn't a boost. I was just like back to normal. But it's not, I don't, right? It's yeah. Not yeah. That was more That's my thing. Relatively. But yeah, okay, people- got it. Pandemic, pandemic, normal. Uh, pandemic you know? baseline. And uh, people are really starting to push back, particularly as this fourth wave is starting to kind of come. And, you know, I think that the timing just isn't the best for the liberals and perhaps earlier would have been better in terms of polling, but then the pandemic. So I don't know what you two think about that. Well, I guess the the question is, what's the alternative? Mm -hmm. I mean, the alternative was to keep going. Would be no election at all. No election at all. And you could go until 2024 if you didn't get defeated. But I suspect they sort of looked at the moment and said, well, we can go now with, with favorable numbers, but uncertainty, or we can go later, in which case we just have uncertainty. Yeah. And so let's go now. I don't think the strategic calculation was necessarily a bad one. I, I do think it was unnecessary, but I understand it. Of course, it might bite them in the ass. Mm-hmm. And I hope it does a little bit at least. Same. So you're thinking that there could experience a little bit of like what the liberals in Nova Scotia experienced last week, or, you know, maybe they just like lose some seats or. Yeah. I mean, I think the probability that we end up pretty much where we are is high. You know, you get status quo antebellum. You just basically end up with what you got. But again, for them, the, the worst case, presumably, and I think it's still true is a minority government well they already have a minority government mm-hmm. so why not go for the majority that's probably the thinking that that seems reasonable enough to me even though again it, reasonable through the lens of of a partisan hack of course not not a normal person right so like if you think of the timing you have the provincial elections coming up next year mm-hmm. uh for ontario and there are a few others that go because Alberta is the year after it's 2023 yeah 2022 is Ontario is it Quebec too anyway sorry I don't I'm not up on my provincial stuff I just know that 2022 is Ontario and 2023 is Quebec and of course BC just had theirs etc etc and Nova Scotia so there's like this window and then they want to do it before fall because what if nobody knows what's going to happen with this pandemic, right? It's Mm -hmm. not over. And so I was reading something the other day where the Delta variant, it's here in Ottawa. It is the most prevalent Mm -hmm. and it's not only infecting unvaccinated people. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So unvaccinated people are 20 times more likely to get Delta, but it's also affecting vaccinated people. So we're not out of the woods yet. No. And so I agree with you in that, in that sort of political, you know, uh, strategic political strategist thinking, 
now would be the best time for them with the shortest possible election time that they can muster. 100%. And if you go on to the the CBC poll tracker, which I I did earlier today, and look, you know, polls change, campaigns matter, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That's all true. You can play this little game where you click the lottery ball thing and it runs a hundred simulations of an election. And you can do it over and over and over again. And basically what you get is that 80 some percent of the time, the liberals either win with majority or minority. The conservatives, uh, a fraction of that, sort of 11, 12, 13%. And so the, the, the current probability of the liberals winning a majority based on the poll aggregates is 37%. Their, their, major- their minority is 51%. Yeah. It's hard to, to look at that as a political operative and say, uh, let's let's wait because your your probability of getting better is fairly low. Your probability of getting worse is probably fairly high given the ceiling. So you go for it, even though it's probably not the best thing for the pandemic. It's probably the best thing for the liberals. Oh, I'm running it now. It's fun, right? It is totally fun. Yeah, yeah. There's like a gumball machine a little yeah. bit too. Yeah. Nice. And if you're really a gambler, vibing. which which I'm not anymore, but I. I I did used to like to gamble. It does satisfy that that sort of need to roll the dice. Yeah, I got 37 liberal majority, 52 liberal minority, one con majority and 10 conservatives minority. Hmm. I, I guess that's a percentage. It was a off of 100. It's off of 100. Yeah, so, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. So yeah. it's a probability. Yeah, OK. Got it. So, so what do you think about the state of the Liberal Party in the election? Like, do you how do you think things are going now that we're you know a week in ish? I mean, I think as a rule, people should sort of just ignore the first week or two. Uh, that isn't to say that that important things don't happen. It's just to say that they're not really representative of where things will end up. It it, it is a sort of a period of of assessing of the other parties, assessing the electorate, assessing uh, one's own party and settling on on the sort of motifs that will later come up uh, but but there will be new things that happen will some things will will become more prominent some things less prominent parties are trying to agenda set right now a little bit too they're in the early stages of agenda setting i mean this is critical part of part of fighting of, a, of a, a, an election is deciding what the election is going to be about. Right. And you do that by trying to get the media to talk about the things that you want them to talk about and you keep repeating them. And, and we, uh, you know, if we followers of, of this stuff hear it over and over and over and over and over again, but there's an old line that I'm going to paraphrase as, you know, you tell them once, you tell them twice, you tell them three times. And by the time you're sick of telling them, they're just starting to hear you. Right. Yeah. And so that's what's that's what's going to happen. So I, I think uh, right now the liberals are a little bit underwhelming. The NDP is a little bit um, overwhelming compared to where they usually are. The conservatives are probably, a, you know, a little bit underwhelming, too, but but better than I think we thought they would be. Yeah. And that's the the sort of opening gate. But again, it's the first lap of, of you know, a six lap race and nobody wins it on the first lap. Yeah. yeah. And and let's be honest, like who's paying attention right now? Yeah. Besides us. Yeah. yeah. Just, just the three of us. OK. Like literally it's like us. <laughs> yeah. I mean, high information like, partisans, basically, exactly, who've already made up their mind. Exactly. Exactly. Everybody else is at the cottage or trying to like be out on a patio somewhere. You could tell that this is where my mind's at right now. Yeah, I know. It's a Friday so, afternoon. Um, so. I, I like 
I don't anticipate anything really being useful or, or fruitful until after Labor Day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Basically, that's when that's yeah. when it'll start. And by then we'll only have two weeks. But in, in terms of like agenda setting, and, you know, setting the tone and, you know, the conservatives kind of overperforming of our lower expectations at this, you know, very early state. Do you think that the conservatives are really doing well? Because like the first few days of the campaign have been dominated by vaccines and mandatory vaccines. And like, that doesn't seem like a very popular topic for Aaron O'Toole to like really come out of the gate on, you know, Trudeau and it has come like out really hard against mandatory vaccines, sorry, in favor of mandatory vaccines. Oh, they're trying to make it a wedge wedge issue. That's for sure. Mm -hmm. Like the liberals are trying to corner O'Toole early and make this uh, a tenor of the mm-hmm. campaign or else they wouldn't have made the policy changes beforehand to do it. Right. Yeah. So I, that's yeah. what I think. I think that's yeah. a great point because like, I think David, you've been talking about maybe in a column and maybe also on Twitter about how there's like no real stakes and there's no like issues really that are like at the fore of this election. Well, I, I was saying it's a, an unnecessary but important election that there are a bunch of, of issues that are critically important, but there isn't a single ballot box question, which is what pundits often talk about. Is what's the ballot question? And my response is that there's, there's you know, depends who you're talking about. There's almost never a single ballot question. It just looks that way because of media effects. And, you know, pundits and partisans fall for this all the time, but it's I, I think it's inaccurate. And there are things that draw people more or less, but again, no single unifying thing with, with maybe an exception of sort of like 1988 when free trade dominated, but even then it wasn't just free trade. And so, but but I actually think the conservatives are doing better than most people think that they are for two I would agree. I'd agree with that too. I mean, the first reason is I think we expected them to come out of the gate and just fall on their face and not get up again, just sort of lay there until it was over. And, you know, like, you know, you trip <laughs> like on the starting block. seal. <laughs> well, no, I was thinking like, yeah, the starting block of a race that you fall at the block and then you, instead of running the rest of the lap, you just lay there and be like, I just wait till everyone's finished and then I'm going home. <laughs> the David you know? Lostrap approach to racing. <laughs> I just, yeah, I'm like, I'm out. I'm not doing this. I shouldn't have been here in the first place. But I, but what I, uh, <laughs> You know, or, or, you know, you're playing a baseball game, you're out in the field and you just sit down because, you know, I don't want to be here. <laughs> you, just, you know, you're off in left field and you're like, nah, I'm just sitting down. Literally Sunny, you know, flowers. <laughs> but I, uh, no, I was, um, I was a bit of a belligerent baseball player, but that's a different conversation. <laughs> but I, I uh, you know, there's sort of steadyish in the polls, but the one area I think that we might be underappreciating at the moment, we might see some important growth is that the affordability frame is is going to be i think central i don't think it's gonna be definitive because again not a single ballot box question but i think it's going to be central to the campaign and i think that most what is sorry that uh, affordability affordability okay and that we'll be talking about inflation we'll talk we'll be talking about um, you know uh, how much money people have gotten their pockets a year and a half into this two years into this Maybe we'll talk about a little bit of Bank of Canada stuff, but that's that's marginal. Monetary policy will be marginal. But I, I think we'll be talking about inflation and, and affordability quite a bit. It's top of mind as Abacus reports for a lot of voters. And I think the Tories have some, some capacity to move on that. So I think it's not a terrible week for them. Listen, David, Justin Trudeau doesn't think about monetary policy. 
<laughs> what a what a stupid arrogant answer and i mean the whole context of it makes it a little better but not not a lot and uh i totally missed that what happened he shouldn't do flippant or funny he should not do flippant or funny he needs Bruno to stick to a script a question about what was the question about the question was about inflation and the the bank of canada the bank of canada's uh, mandate reviews coming up and again mm. inflation is on the agenda and he sort of said well you know when i think about the biggest social program and he's talking about child care you'll ex- you know you'll forgive me if i don't think about monetary policy which was just a bad answer to the question should have been you know wait a minute wait a minute trudeau said that mm-hmm. yeah in vancouver what yeah mm-hmm. i'm sorry but my economist proclivities just bristled at that i thought they I, might i, I well i what do you mean you don't think about mo- what? I what? think he's sort of meant to be to try to give him the benefit of the doubt a little bit. I think he was trying to say it's fiscal you know, policy. I'm thinking about yeah, I'm thinking about child care. It's not in a fiscal policy yeah. lens or, yeah. or a fiscal yeah. policy framework. But he didn't say that, did he? No, it was it was a terrible answer. What it should have been, as some people on Twitter pointed out, including some comms folks, uh, I care a great deal about inflation, about monetary policy. Obviously, you know, the Bank of Canada reviews coming up. We'll take that seriously. Right now, I'm focused on what I can control, and that is fiscal policy and making sure that every child has a place for child care and that parents can get back into the workforce and contribute to the economy. Right. Why are we not doing comms? (laughs) Yeah, well, because he does this is thank you for your donation. Right. It You're is. Just... Thank you for your don't. Oh, oh, explain that. Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, don't explain the thing. I think our listeners probably know. Well, yeah, re-explain it. Actually, he was at a fundraiser and he was being heckled and protested for uh, grassy narrows for his grassy stand. narrows and, and the mercury that's in the yeah. water that they haven't cleaned up in 40 years. Yes. Yeah. And uh, the, the folks protesting were escorted out and on their way out, he's, you know, looked at them and said, thanks for your donation. These were indigenous protesters, by the way. Happy yeah. reconciliation to you. Yeah. And that's why he should not. I, I think every so often the mask slips with Trudeau. Yeah. And that's those moments. And he should work real hard to make sure it doesn't. And he, I mean, so it's he just shouldn't because, do funnier for them. I think a great example of that is like, who else does that is Joe Biden, where like he Oof, tries yeah. to like make a quip and it comes out completely wrong and falls flat. Like, I don't think... Joe Biden and Justin Trudeau are inherently funny people. Like, no, I think I remember, they can make yeah. a joke and they have a good sense of humor, but I don't think they're funny. No, they're not. And you remember Biden? Trudeau, Trudeau thinks he's funny. He's not funny. No, but like Obama. The man barely funny. has a personality. Okay? You know who was funny? Who? Trump. Trump well, was. Not on purpose. Not a, no, no, no. But like Trump was, was funny. Yeah. And, and it. He was also an authoritarian and a fascist, so I'm not defending Trump. I'm just saying, is you know, funny isn't necessarily an asset, (laughs) and it's not something. You know what I mean? And it's not going to do you any good. And 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 Biden tried it. He's also got again the flippant thing is part of it. It's not just about funny. It's about also being flippant. Mm -hmm. And Biden, there's that clip of Biden at the military base, clap you stupid bastards. <laughs> or might have been just clap you bastards, but anyways, it's something like that. And but then hasn't the... Biden benefited from Trump in that way? If you know what I mean, like you know, Biden could say "fuck you," <laughs> everybody be like, "Oh, okay." Oh yeah, you know what of I mean. The norms have like, declined. So the norms can... have declined, but yeah. also, also, it's it's Biden gets the benefit of his age. First of all, mm-hmm. 
We people talk about age discrimination. Let's talk about how old people get a fucking pass for their shit ideas and their shit comments. Okay. <laughs> because because they've been around because they're from a different generation. It's What's hard the... for them to make changes now. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And they just get a pass. I feel like Biden gets a pass because he's old. And because Trump just deteriorated all sorts of like standards whatsoever. So Biden can be like, are you kidding me? Or can make those flipping comments and it won't hurt him. Yeah. You know, Trudeau, on the other hand, we've had six years of Trudeau instead of four years of Trump. I'm just saying the context is a little different. It is. And it didn't have to be that way. You know, it's interesting is that in the aftermath of Trump, it was sort of accepted that, okay, well, the norms are shot. Let's. You know, it's a free for all in the aftermath of Nixon in the 70s and 80s. It, it wasn't that at all. There was an attempt to put things back together. I don't think that's that's happening. But mm-hmm. uh, but I also think if you sort of look at the liberal record, they are extremely cynical, slick, yep. full of capacity. Yeah. And when they're on their game, they're really on the game. When they slip up, it's a mess. But when they can lock it down they perform really well and there's a reason the liberals are, so, are, are brushed aluminum it's because that's how they shine and once that, that sheen starts to go it's it's big trouble and so that's something i'll be watching in the campaign too can can trudeau keep it together because i think he really doesn't like being disliked he doesn't like it when the attention's not on him he doesn't like uh when people are making fun of him so there are ways to rattle him and i wonder if the conservatives will find uh, or the new democrats Block or green, for that matter, will find a way to exploit that, knock him off his game. So, in addition to affordability, what are some other kind of key issues that you think are going to drive people to the polls? Because I think, you know, like as you said, it's early days. We don't really know what turnout's going to be like. It feels to me like it could be low only because people aren't paying attention. But again, like we said, it's too early to tell. But, you know, I think that there are, you know, David, you talked about. There are a lot of issues that will drive people to the polls. So in addition to affordability, what do we think? We, we did ask uh, on Twitter and on Instagram through the podcast accounts, like what issues people were, were really passionate about. And there was a lot of um, responses about land back, climate change, pharmacare, and housing. Mm-hmm. I mean, I suspect that represents what, what, folks like us are focused on progressive younger people on balance. Uh, but I think the fact is on, if you look at this, the polling at least and what people say they care about now, that doesn't mean that's what they actually care about. It doesn't mean it's going to, what's going to drive them to the polls, but it gives you a good sense of what most people at least say they care about. Cost of living is always t- top climate change is routinely now near the top sort of top five, top three, Healthcare, obviously, and that would include pharmacare and the pandemic. Uh, that also, and then of course, you have like economic taxation stuff. That sort of round out the top issues typically, and then so on down the line with other stuff. But those are the big ones. And I would say housing as a breakthrough issue will will be another one. And if if you look at the the plans, the Liberals' plan isn't out yet, but you can look at the National Housing Strategy and compare. Mm-hmm. The Tories probably have the best housing plan, probably. Yep. So I suspect they'll be working real hard to make that a key issue. And uh, so I suspect housing will be big too. 
And Erica is also a fan of the conservative housing plan. Um, How about that, huh? Yo, we were I on felt, the phone when she I realized felt, this. I felt a little dirty. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I, you know what I mean? Yeah, but I always they do, do bring up good points yep. in the housing plan. Yep. Sorry to all you listeners who want the hate brigades to continue. And don't worry, it'll continue. <laughs> but <laughs> I'm just saying, like, give credit where it's due. Yeah. You know, they have a housing first. I have not seen even the NDP talk about housing first, mm-hmm. which in itself it embedded is the acknowledgement that housing is a right. Mm-hmm. Right. So basically, the conservatives just said in their platform, look, housing is a right. That's huge. And For we're going to get conservatives. It. Yeah. And we're going to get and, it done. And nobody's talking like I, it's amazing to me that the pundit, I talked about it naturally, but the mm-hmm. punditry, I'm like, how did everybody miss this? And then I'm like, oh, they're not policy analysts. That's why. Yeah. And the, and the conservatives are just starting to prime it. I mean, I think that they know this is one of their big things and that they're going to wait until they prime it. If I had to guess, I would say in the aftermath of the uh, Labor Day. We'll, we'll start to see a lot from them about this because they'll start to lead uh, hard on it because again, it's just, it's just the better plan. And, and it's, and you know, what really sets it apart. The fact that they're talking about it in the municipal context of how you actually get this stuff built, right. including tying it to uh, density drivers like transit. Yep. Yes. And, yes. Uh, that's, yes. That's yes. a great it's, model. It's, yes. I t- it's no, it's a great model. Not only that, because they're starting to reimagine cities. Yeah. That's the underlying point is that when they tied it to, and I didn't talk about that, but when they tied it to transportation, so they're actually tying these things to the density and yeah. to encourage more density, which has far reaching implications for climate, for cars, for how we move around. I mean, I think that this is the gem of the whole conservative plan, Yeah. period. And the real estate, like the whole thing about using federal land or federal assets and using part of them and changing it into affordable housing in and federal federal buildings are usually in areas, I think, with. Ah, uh, depends. It depends. They're usually like accessible by transit. They're usually accessible. And federal buildings will always have a transit stop. Mm-hmm. Right? I thought it was really smart. Yeah. I'll say it again. Yeah. I wrote that it was really smart. Yeah. And I was just like, I put it down on paper, like for posterity reasons. And it's 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 true. I mean, I actually think that this is where this is this is the best housing plan out of all of them. Out of the all two, <laughs> so well, you can kind of compare with the liberals' strategy over the last couple. Of, maybe they'll do a one eighty. I don't. I doubt it, though. I think this will be. I think this will be the like. It's like not says, everything. It's the, it's the jewel in the crown. Yeah, but this is my. This is my. I mean, the crown is kind of tarnished, but whatever. It's a jewel anyway. This is the problem I have with the NDP is that the NDP wants government to do everything, and I don't necessarily want that kind of that level of government intervention in my life. You know, as somebody who's racialized, I like somebody who's black, definitely don't want that, mm. you know? And 
instead of using mechanisms, they too, I, I complain about the conservatives being like, like they use tax cuts or tax credits, credits as a panacea. Whereas on the other hand, the NDP use government intervention and government programs as a panacea. Mm-hmm. And my argument is that communities, if you build up communities and you allow communities to be communities, a lot of them can take care of, can police themselves, can, can do a lot of that work. So why not empower communities instead of giving everything to the government and then we have to give them all our data and only God knows what they're doing with it? Because that's the other part. Yeah, like the, the NDP wants a national school nutrition program. I didn't see that. Yeah. Like, why can't that be done by local school districts? Yeah, they're bypassing the provinces. Uh, they like, want a national senior strategy. There And all these strategies are all talk and no action. This is my... Pro- okay, so let me get on the NDP now, because I, I cannot even just... <sighs> the end... Honestly... Uh, the NDP, we just went through their platform this morning together. Mm-hmm. It's uninspiring. Their climate plan is meh. It's all tactics, no strategy, which is, again, what I talk about with the conservatives. Um, everything is a national strategy or a national action plan without the action. Um, they don't describe the mechanisms that they're going to use to make these things happen. They only rudimentarily describe or or talk about the funding that's going to be necessary. And it reads more like a campaign, one big long campaign slogan rather than an actual like actual commitments with heft. And I'm just saying the conservatives like their plan was detailed. It was detailed. And after the conservatives come out with a detailed plan, you come out with this? Seriously? I mean, in the NDP's defense, they're, they released their platform first. <laughs> okay, fine. Okay, fine. Okay. But, okay, fine. I take that back. But I'm just saying some edits should have been made. No, like, go ahead. I'm, I'm tired of them and their campaign slogans masquerading as a platform with these nebulous commitments. It's yeah, nebulous. So a fucking action plan, a strategy, that's nebulous. Yeah, you don't so actually commit to anything. A great segue into what I wanted to say, which is that like the reason these national strategies are bad is because like it's not that the idea or the reason for them is bad. It's the fact that they have no teeth. They don't achieve anything because you develop a strategy for a strategy. Yeah. Like you, it's a strategy and then you put commitments underneath depending on like what department, federal departments feed into that strategy, right? So let's say we talk climate change. Okay, well, climate change can be Environment and Climate Change Canada. It can be agriculture. It can be indigenous services. Uh, it can be public safety. It can be so. Uh, it can be uh, Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation, right? Like there's so many. Uh, it can be Department of Finance and Taxes. Like there's so many things that you know, environmental strategy or climate strategy can touch on that it kind of means nothing. And then the individual departments then are um, supposed to then enact whatever policies they think. It's not like the 
the government in power tells you what to do. You just kind of make things up. So like, it's very incoherent. It's very like broad and like, and then you just kind of report on it and it doesn't really mean anything. Part of me is, is waiting to see the costing, uh, the sort of PBO pending costing that, that informs a lot of what I ultimately think about these positions. I mean, uh, the, the NDP platform seems to just think that we can just throw money all out the window. Just dump well, it, dump it yeah. in the rising sea level. Yeah, like, I, 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 I will say, there are plenty of measures in the NDP platform that I support. I think that they're leading with the wealth tax. Uh, that is a great idea, but is not going to raise the revenue to, to fund a lot of these programs. And so that's a problem. I'll also give them credit for the liberal 2021 child care plan is the old NDP child care plan effectively. Uh, so they are having an influence years on on policy, it's just not by governing, it's by being a policy farm for the liberals, which is an old move for the liberals and an old plague for the NDP, but it is, it does happen. Um, so the, that, that informs a lot about how I think about the NDP. And, and of course, you know, they're always pushing pharmacare, but I think that that's sort of off the agenda a little bit right now, which is too bad. It's, I think- What do you vital mean off the agenda? Uh, it's not a central agenda item in the way that it, it might have been one. I think it'll it'll be uh, housing uh, and child care will dominate the affordability lens and uh, pharma care will be sort of marginalized. I think the NDP is going to have a really hard time to make that a, a top of mind issue. And, I mean, it might not be a voting issue for sure, but like the, the federal government's already hiring for a department or for a sector. Well, what I think is going to happen is if, if this is just me riffing, so I don't know if this is what's actually happening. This is my sense that the liberals from 2015 to whenever they stopped governing, you could see an arc of legacy programs that actually matter. They might not be the exact programs I designed. They might not be as ambitious or emerge in a particular way that, that many on the left would prefer, but they're still significant. The CCB was that the child benefit was the first, the sort of 2015 to 2019. The 2019 to 2020X is childcare, and then you get pharma. And if those three things end up in place after this liberal uh, prime minister, that will be a notable legacy alongside everything else. And they're already sort of one and a half way, you know, out of two there, or sorry, one and a half out of three there. And you can see the arc of that. And the way they're doing it, I don't give credit to Stephen Harper very often, but sometimes I do. And one of the things that, that I give him credit for is the way he did federalism, fairly quietly and bilaterally, ad hoc. Yeah. Trudeau's doing the same things, very smart. I think it's the way you have to do federalism. In this well, era. you could see that with the HST stuff, right? Uh-huh. It, and you see it like, now with childcare. Yeah. And you see it, you see it now with childcare. You're right. It's kind of like, but that's like, that was like a growing trend in trade too, in trade policy, right? Is that instead of it, these it, in global free trade policy? Or, yeah, yeah, yeah right. in global free trade policy, it went from these, um, and I think it was during Stephen Harper's time, if I'm not mistaken, or maybe earlier. Earlier, is that instead of these big, you know, NAFTA trade deals, you it it just it just like they changed to like bilateral trade deals. Yeah, um, more often, it's usually easier. Mm-hmm. Um, and quicker and and easier to implement. Yeah, 
Are you saying we're so, not going to get Kansuk? <laughs> I guess. It's in the Tory platform. Oh, oh God. That's... Wouldn't it be nice to go live in Australia, New Zealand? I'm not living in Australia. Like, why would I want to move to a country more racist than Canada? <laughs> why would I want to move to a, a country that is also literally burns and is like hotter than the sun? <laughs> and where you can't walk under trees at nights because the bugs are like fucking animals. No, thanks. Sorry, Aaron, aren't you from British Columbia? Yeah. But like the coast. Oh, I see. Okay. <laughs> She's like, I'm not fine. doing it's that. Fine, then. <laughs> She's like, I'm not doing that Aussie desert at all. <laughs> it's, totally, it's totally fine. Then no big deal. No, but I think I mean, honestly, I watch for Pharmacare as the sort of third pillar of the liberal long-term plan. Uh, I, I think that I, so, fuck, I know so, for a fact it's on their agenda. I, the question is when. I think it's later, but I think it'll get childcare first, and then it, it'll, the focus will shift to pharma. So, so childcare, pharmacare, and what's the third one? The child benefit. The child. CCP. The child benefit as a legacy. Yeah, that's like their legacy suite. I think so. And, and okay, you know, obviously that is that is how they would characterize their positive legacy, right? Of course, we'll talk about, uh, you know, um, the pipeline. We'll talk about failing on foreign policy and not having one. We'll talk about, uh, you know, the limits of of the pandemic response. Of course, they could also take vaccine procurement, which has been domestically successful and internationally criminal, but domestically, and not just them. I mean, wealthy countries have exploited poorer countries as they always do when it comes to vaccine procurement, but domestically, it's been a success. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's been one of the best globally uh, on the domestic stage. Uh, They'll put the point to that too. So they've got things, but uh, if, if, they leave having done those three things. Those those programs, the CCB already has had a material impact on yeah. on yes, uh, it has on families. It has the the childcare program will have a material impact on families it's, and especially women and and pharma too. And so I, I gotta say, it's they're not my government. I'm a, I want to see socialists. They're certainly not socialists, but these programs aren't nothing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Do you think that the pandemic pushed Childcare ahead of pharmacare, or do you think this is all? Yeah. yeah, that makes sense. It's part of the recovery too, right? I mean, this is it's being it's being sold in part as a pandemic recovery mechanism. Get women back into the workforce. Yeah, da, da, da. yeah. they're going to do the feminist recovery thing. Yeah, or they are doing the feminist recovery thing. Feminist for who? Well, obviously. <laughs> not for us but <laughs> you know basically what they're doing is is tackling those sort of gendered issues too and quite like because if you think of pharmacare and you think of just care period they're tackling the care economy that's basically what they're doing mm-hmm. and so from that they can then say oh look what we've done for women well yeah. and you, you could say the same thing about their like it's part of their proposal for the long-term care, right? Yep. You know, the liberals, they want to have national standards, but they also want to raise the minimum wage for personal support workers to $25 an hour, which will be the a liberals? nightmare to work out with them. Yeah. The, the liberals? Like, I mean, again, where the fuck was this eight Thank months you. or a year ago? But exactly, yeah. exactly, exactly. This is one of their vulnerabilities. This is one of their vulnerabilities. There's going to be a number of things, including the, uh, the federally regulated minimum wage area that they're suggesting to be... Be, uh, sorry, the federally regulated um, sick days, which they're suggesting to raise to 10 days and permanent uh, and have employer paid, incidentally. 
and they're also talking about convening provincial premiers to try to have more sick days within areas of provincial jurisdiction, which is to say everything that isn't uh, federally regulated spaces and federal employees. Again, where was this a year ago, right? This is one of their vulnerabilities. People are going to say, why the fuck didn't you do that during the pandemic? And if their answer is, uh, well, the other parties were toxic, that's bullshit because the other tar- parties would have played ball. If they say, well, we didn't have time, then it speaks to the fact that they couldn't manage the house, that they were poor managers of, of the house, mm-hmm. right? So I think that's yeah. a real vulnerability for them, and, and they ought to you know, face the accountability for that. They should. Absolutely. And I hope um, I hear that question. I hope I hear that question over and over and over again. Do you want to talk about climate? Yes. Oh, good. So, David, I don't know. I mean, I'm sure you read this this morning in the uh, political playbook that TMX, Trans Mountain, it may not play a big role and that and natural gas may not play a big role during the campaign. You, you kind of hinted that you maybe disagree with this. Have I become a cliche as someone who reads the playbook in the morning? You cite, first of all, you've cited it already on this call once. Second, I also saw you tweet out the time you were mentioned for your 10 of 10 on Room Raider. So, uh, yeah, because, and don't you mention it then, in our group, like, in our group chat? Literally, yeah, I read, it's very good. I, I quite like, I think people should sign up for it. it oh, it's, it's so good. It's, it's I, Politico's know playbook. It's, it's yeah. good. Yes. It's run by a great team. I mentioned the Room Raider thing be- as a joke because I said, I, I omitted the Room Raider bit and said, ten- David Moscrop, 10 out of 10, ladies, mm-hmm. you know? And and so... Like you need help in that area. No need to look <laughs> up the details. Uh, so I thought, it was, I thought it was quite funny. But uh, finally, I'm being covered for um, what matters. Things, your important contributions to the internet. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but no, it's, it's quite, I think it is a sort of the cliched thing to wake up in the morning and to read the, the newsletters and the quote unquote insider newsletters. But uh, uh, no, I, I think, I think TMX will always be on the agenda in the sense that people won't let the liberals forget about it. And environmentalists are rightfully concerned day-to-day folks do about purchasing it. Uh, and about increasing the the flow of of uh, petroleum product through it, um, but is that going to move a single vote? I doubt it. I don't think anyone in the, this 2021, this year of our Lord, is going to say I'm not voting liberal because TMX. I'm like you are never going to vote liberal. If that's mm-hmm. the case, you know. I mean, it and and so these are these are not likely liberal voters. Uh, incidentally, I don't think there's a ton of conservatives that are going to say I'm going to vote liberal because they bought TMX. You know. And, Two years ago, three, whatever it was. So I, well, I, I think I just, it's part of the I legacy, but I don't think it was a waste. Thing. Yeah, huge waste. Yeah, there was no mark. I mean, the 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 market said no, thank you. I mean, it was the, the government had to step in because the market didn't want anything to do with it because the risk profile was too high. And exactly. So it's hard to turn around and then say, well, you know, the government believes in this, and we're going to use it to fund climate change, right? Our climate change. Uh, response. This is their line. Because when the IPCC report came out recently and said, oh, by the way, we're, we're not just fucked, we're mega fucked. The liberals said, reminded us, well, we need the money to pay for climate programming, as if this isn't going to contribute to the problem. And so uh, they've got to respond to that, at least. And it's, it's a tough response. Do you think that Canada starts, needs to start thinking in a serious way about like divesting from fossil fuels? Well, yeah, of course I do. But I I will say with with the caveat, two caveats. One, 
as he will point out, we still are going to produce petroleum products, yeah. not oil and gas uh, for, for, for heating and, and fueling uh, vehicles, but petroleum products. And that's going to be part of our profile for some time. So we do need a strategy for, for that because we're not just going to wake up tomorrow and say, well, we're not going to make plastic anymore. It's just not going to happen. And two, we need to have a, a real talk about alternative forms of, of energy. And I don't think we're having the, a, a real serious renewables debate or, or new sources of energy debate. And I think we need to talk about that. What's the model look like? And we need to talk about nuclear. And, and I think this is somewhere the left doesn't want to go often because often they typically don't support nuclear power. I know the NDP doesn't, for instance, but you'll notice that, that um, small modular reactors come up in the conservative platform. And it's a conversation we need to have about, about how we're going to do energy work in the, in the, if we're going to wean ourselves off of fossil fuels quickly. And I don't know, I don't know if the left is ready for that debate. I'm torn on nuclear. I'm not, I'm not, I haven't decided because I, I don't know enough yet, but I do think that SMRs are, are more interesting than a lot of folks think, and we should be talking about it. Now's a great time to talk about it during this election. If not Because when people hear nuclear, they think Three Mile Island or Chernobyl mm -hmm. or Fukushima, they don't, they're not thinking SMRs. It's a, it's, a, it's a new technology. It's a new way of doing nuclear. And, you know, we're just not having that conversation. And I guess, like, part of it depends on, like, how those types of facilities deal with extreme weather right like oh yes yeah whether it's yeah. you know fires or earthquakes or ice storms or whatever like we are floods. increasing yeah floods we're increasingly seeing more and worse extreme weather yeah you know or or like permafrost right like up in the north people have built their homes on frozen ground that is now melting and they just live in a puddle yeah yeah, I mean, today, the day we're recording is the first, uh, we're reading reports of the uh, the first time it has rained on the top of Greenland, mm -hmm. right? At the peak of Greenland, I should say. Yeah. Uh, you know, these, these milestones are becoming more and more common and frightening. And this is the sort of negative feedback loops and feedback cycles that really scare observers of this stuff, is that it's just the... the the extremes are one thing. The breakdowns are one thing. The chains that they trigger and the feedback loops that they trigger are a whole different thing, like melting permafrost that releases methane, right? It's and viruses and sort of ancient viruses that are very scary, even though they don't seem to pose a direct immediate threat that I've seen, but there's nonetheless, they're unsettling. Yeah, but viruses mutate all the time, right? Yeah, yeah. That's the other thing. Tell me about it. I mean, you know, we just sort of like this pandemic has been a great example of like, oh, holy shit, <laughs> these things mutate. Well, yeah, and I, I think that the link between climate change and pandemics needs to be more forcefully made. Mm -hmm. We will have more frequent frequent pandemics like this as long as climate change keeps happening, yeah. and it also has to do with like deforestation and. Yeah and encroaching on wildlife yep. that you know makes these viruses and your contact with animal life more direct etc cetera, etc cetera, as yep. you've you've fucked up their ecosystem do you know what keeps you know what scares the, the piss out of me when it comes mm. to that mm. leishmaniasis explain it is a flesh-eating bacteria tropical typically that is creeping up into North America 
and it's bad news bears. And it's sort of predicted to creep further, further north as years continue. And it is just deeply unsettling. I, I, will, I will note this to people. If you're squeamish or nervous about these things, don't look it up. Classic David going straight to the doomsday scenario. But I, but I and like then to, tells you, don't look it up. Don't look it up. Yeah, look away from the car crash. I, I like to poke my bruises, but I, I but I initially read about it in a in a, a really interesting book, uh, the um, Lost Kingdom of the Monkey God, I think it's called, the Lost City of the Monkey God. And they all sort of like these guys that went on this expedition got a bunch of got it. And it's, it's frightening. But this is the point is this stuff is going to become, you know, the sort of tropical um, diseases and, and threats are moving north. So it's, it's, it's all bad. Erica, I'm curious on your thoughts on the, the race part of these platforms and the proposals put forward so far. Where are they? <laughs> That's what I want to know. <laughs> Not in a conservative platform. No, Still looking no. for them, frankly. The, cons- the conservatives have decided that protecting animals mm-hmm. is more important than protecting people. Animal Black rights. people. Animal, Animal rights. rights are more important to the conservatives than fixing systemic racism. Mm-hmm. That's my problem. And fuck them for that. That's, I mean, that's one of your problems. <laughs> True. I mean, the liberals are going to, I pretty much know what the liberals are going to say. They're going to say, look, we gave you an entrepreneurship program. And I'm you, like, right? exactly. <laughs> right. So it brings me to a question, actually, David yes. and Aaron. Why is entrepreneurship all of a sudden the panacea for economic inequality? Mm-hmm. It's market driven. These exactly. folks love their market-driven nonsense. But it's also classism. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you it's know? barriers to participation. It's just like, oh, here's a mentor. Well, we don't, yeah, we don't want to fix the structural issues. We don't want to fix the, 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 the barriers. We, we, so here, go be an entrepreneur and let the market deal with you. Mm-hmm. That's what I feel like it is. It's laziness. I, and like the thing is, they're gonna they, people with like you know the conservatives or the liberals who like are very much in favor of these types of programs are gonna spin it as like oh it's empowering, yeah. I mean, and sure. then when you fail because businesses fail all the time, by the way, so they want they want marginalized people to take on more risk. That's basically your solution to fixing inequities. That makes no sense to me. And they don't address policing, right? Right. This That's is something another, you brought up. Yes. You know, the opposite. <laughs> they don't address policing. Well, the conservatives, apparently the conservatives want us to have a police state. Mm-hmm. Okay. Have you seen their national security stuff? It's frightening. I mean, it is absolutely frightening. They surprised? basically want to give the police, to give CSEs, to give community, CSE, CSE, more money, more power without oversight. How's that going to go with Islamophobia? How are we going to make sure that that people of color, especially who are usually disproportionately targeted, are targeted for surveillance by the state? But this is also my problem with the liberals. The liberals want to punish, rightfully so, social media companies for their misuse of data. I'm like, what about your misuse of data? Where's that? 
this is a federal, you know, famously or infamously, federal parties often uh, uh, exempt from privacy data, privacy stuff, right? But yeah. Also, ask have to have some data in order to misuse it. <laughs> exactly. You're collecting data from all of us all the time. What are you doing with it? Yeah, because they're 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 exempt from PIPEDA, right? I think I'm so. Sure. I, I think, think so. So, so uh, yeah, they 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 have a different standard. Of course, you know, everyone likes bashing on telco or, or telecoms and, and on uh, platforms because it's popular. I think telecoms are begging for it, incidentally. And I think platforms are begging for it, but they sort of go back to those wells, especially when it comes to platforms to talk about this stuff. Uh, but of course they're in government and they've done very little to address it. I don't really trust them on it very much. In fact, and, and in fact, if you look how seriously they take this stuff, look at their offerings on it. The bills have been terrible to the extent they've even existed. Bill C-10, I'm not, this is a little off topic, but Bill C-10 is one of the worst, man, this is the, the um, broadcast stuff around um, access to the discoverability of Canadian cultural stuff on platforms and streaming services. YouTube and so on was one of the worst managed bills I've ever seen in my entire life. But don't worry, like, that through and not the um, conversion therapy bill. It died too, though. They both they both sure. died, and, and yet they, they as as well as the online harms bill. Yeah, that was introduced on the last day. But I gotta say, I'm glad I'm glad C10 died. I, yeah. I hope whoever deals with the online harms, whoever deals with C10 is not uh, Stephen Gilbo, who is one of the most incompetent ministers I've ever seen in my entire life. But the they love him in Quebec. They yes, love they him do. in Quebec. They and sure that's do. why. So and we, because of Quebec, we are dealing with somebody who doesn't seem to understand the internet. That's great. And well, is, and the thing is, is, is we that like Gilbo's chief of staff is Matthew Boudreau, who is, you know, the, was led the um Quebec campaign last time and was went into like finance or something PMO was like completely useless there and is now there at Heritage and this is what we get instead of police reform the yeah RCMP? yeah this is what we get instead of police reform this an entrepreneurial yeah programs? oh and the entrepreneurial program is suspect anyway because from what I understand black people have been telling me that apparently the interest rate is high way too high so the interest rate is high it's uh, the the organization that's supposed to administer it was only created in 2020 in justin trudeau's riding and i'm just like um, oh this isn't this isn't suspect at all given your history you know so in other words as usual black people get the short end of the stick even though where black people are situated are easy, are in exactly the areas that are contested areas. Wasn't there a story recently about how much of that money had actually been spent so far? And it was like very underperforming. Is that um, David Thurton's piece, I feel? Mm, I don't know. But yeah, it was just like only like a certain percentage of the, that funding had been allocated. And it explains with what you're saying, Erica, but why that makes sense is because a brand new organization would be wouldn't have the skills or the knowledge of navigating the federal system to get the money out the door. Exactly. Exactly. So why are we creating new organizations to administer this program? All this talk makes me want crackers for lunch. <laughs> I'm not joking. Oh, I mean, it's a joke, but it's also true. Oh, my God. <laughs> 
Oh! I I'm I just went and got some, and uh, anyway. What kind? Cars. So- you know the, do you know the 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 cars, uh, table crackers. There's like there's like a garlic one. Are those the nice gouda? <laughs> Jalapeno gouda. <Give> it in. <laughs> there's also poppers. We're also speaking of, of jalapenos. Poppers are on the election agenda too. How? Oh, oh yeah. yes. Did you see this yes, yesterday? Yes. Yes, yes, yes. Poppers, I'm sure yes. Aaron O'Toole or someone on his, his team had to Google what poppers were for sure. And in fact, I looked at the Google uh, search trends yesterday. And it was like a big surge in people uh, looking at uh, 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 poppers. Probably well, journalists. Was Michelle Rempel Garner, who last week tweeted something before the election call. Tweeted yes, she did. Legalize that shit. The decriminalization of poppers. Yeah. And Justin Ling was just like, oh, this is surprising. <laughs> Do it. If anyone's like, what's poppers? It's a, a drug that gay men use for sex mostly. And a club drug too, right? It's like a pretty yeah. popular club drug, a uh, liquid inhalable, inhalant. Yeah. Yeah. Then uh, also BuzzFeed News has a piece on poppers by David Mack and like how the, they're created. So that's interesting to you. <laughs> Read that. Um, I think we need to talk about the elephant in the room, which is the Green Party. Since they haven't come up in this conversation yet, which on the one hand, I feel badly about, but on the other hand, listen, you get what you deserve. How do, how do we feel that that's going for them? Uh, you know, that's going for them. Yeah. Well, so Paul today is campaigning outside of her riding for the first time, although still in Toronto. No, no. I thought she was in her riding for the first time. No, no, what, no. She's what outside riding? of it. She doesn't have time. a riding. In, inside of her, right. Her would-be riding. So she's Toronto Centre, but she's she's uh, she's in a uh, another Toronto riding today doing some campaigning. But she's not planning on leaving Toronto very much during the campaign, both because obviously she's focused on winning her seat, but I think also because they don't really have any money. <laughs> right. sense. Is, but they, they've also had their, uh, I think, a much more favorable board now. And my position is this. I have problems with Paul on, on a handful of things, uh, including how she treated some staff issues, uh, her position on Israel, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but the woman was elected duly to lead the party, and they need to get out of the way and let her do her thing, let her lead, give 100%. her a chance. Absolutely. Right? I mean, we, I have lots of misgivings about the NDP and the liberals and the conservatives too, but I don't doubt that their leaders should be given the freedom to lead. And Paul should too, and and I hope that I hope her own party gets out of the way and lets her uh, take her shot, and and uh, she certainly deserves it. Oh yeah, like if she like yeah, they're they're probably gonna can her if they don't pick up any seats or anything. Which I mean, that's yeah, they're starting that challenge. They kind of shot themselves in the foot on with all of this like in party fighting, very public. They didn't like her. They want to get rid of her. They're going to use the election as pretext to get rid of her. And that is that. I don't agree with Paul either on Israel and Palestine, but also this is the hill you want to die on. Like I where's where's all this? Where's all this energy for all our domestic challenges? Honestly, where's all this energy for the environment and climate change? They they literally exist for a single issue and they're not even talking about it. Yes. How are you missing it? Look, if I were enemy Paul, I would be talking about climate all the fucking time. They'd be like, they'd look at me and say, oh, Lord, here comes the climate woman. You know what I mean? Yeah. All the fucking time. 
Okay. The like the IPCC report came out a week before the election call, and the like the platform's written. Like your reason for existing is written. It, it's there for you. You have to do no really original thinking. It's just there. You just walk up to a microphone and be like, "Climate change is bad." Here's the report, and, and you know, and you know where green support is bleeding to, the liberals. So obviously live uh, israel and palestine aren't that important or else you wouldn't be going to the liberals Mm -hmm. i like obviously you don't like the leader and given that she's only been in the job for like eight or nine months this started these rumors started in like march or april okay she got six months and then they came for her Mm -hmm. that's what i'm saying Mm-hmm. I don't have to agree with her. And on top of that, stop expecting black people to be your progressive, like beggar vances, beggar vances. Okay. <laughs> like we have a range. There are apparently black Zionists. There you go. There are black conservatives. There are black people who are anti-abortion. They're black people who are ultra conservative. Mm-hmm. Stop treating black people like we're just there as step stools for your progressive agenda that doesn't even fucking include us. I'm done. I'm tired. I'm tired of fucking progressives. I'm sorry. I'm just tired. A, you can't apparently you can I saw the other day that somebody was complaining about a candidate because they worked for an organization that that somebody didn't like. And I'm like, I worked for DFO at one point. Does that make me anti-indigenous? Yeah. I don't understand. Like, I, I just grow up is my whole thing and get into the fucking real world because there's a lot of trade-offs that we have to make. That's life. Yeah. And David, I don't know what to tell you. You were tweeting earlier before we jumped on this call about partisanship and how partisans are like gonna partisan, but like at one point, and it comes to a point where it's like, be a fucking normal human. I get having values and that's absolutely one thing, but like living and dying on hills is like, there's no alternative option is just. Or at least bill the parties for your time, you know? (laughs) I I, I get that some people are paid to do this, but God, if you're doing it on Twitter for free, you need to you need to at least be compensated for your time. My mm-hmm. God, uh, the, it, it, it alludes. I mean, I, I understand the partisan appeal. We, we create these social connections and in groups because they serve functions for us, both material and psychological. So that's important. But it's also clowning around often and, and we can see through it and it's irritating and off putting. And so people you know, often need to give their head a shake, especially since in some cases, the sort of psychological commitments outweigh the material realities uh, that, and the people aren't served by that connection. And it's not ideal. And it's not, you know, there, and there are different varieties of partisans, of course. And in fact, this is the great irony of the whole thing. When you talk to employed in partisans, in many cases, privately, they're much more reasonable than the Twitter uh, partisans who aren't employed by the parties, right? Yeah, like a friend of mine was texting me today. He's like, can we just have a like an honest discussion about real issues for this election? I was like, no, because it just it just turns into Twitter. It turns into a flame war. It turns into hashtag own the libs. Like, it's so stupid. Right, and, damn a Trudeau. Yeah, yeah, like any sort of dumb thing. Like, we can never have an intellectual discussion about any sort of policy at, on like a concrete level with anyone, particularly online because no one cares. Enough. Well, let's well let's talk about the memification of politics then. 
for example. So you can't, you can't have honest critiques or criticism. Now everything's a fucking meme or a hashtag. And I have to say that that seems to be a legacy of the right and mm-hmm. a legacy of Trump and a yep. legacy of Ontario proud. And when, and like, I'm not even convinced that Kathleen Wynne's defeat was because of Ontario proud. I haven't seen the evidence of that. That's something that the media just put out there without evidence. It, it's like a correlation and they haven't proved the causation. So that's one thing. Second of all, when Andrew Shear tried to scale it nationally, it didn't work. So and so the vitriol that comes with memes, some of them are funny. Some they just turn into baseless campaign attacks. The problem with memes is that they end up being racist and sexist and stuff like that, unless you're making fun of racism and sexism and stuff like that. The memification of politics gives us that conservative Willy Wonka ad (laughs) and that they didn't even, that they had to take down for copyright, which is in itself. Hilarious. It's a meme in and of itself, (sighs) you know? So I, I think that there's, I think that there's something that the, the right wing brought in to the political sphere that now every, that's the way we do politics now. It's just memes and like no serious questions and the surface level attacks and it's exhausting and it's exhausting and so ill-timed. Here's the thing that the conservatives are going to have to, may, may have to reckon with. We are a country that went through trauma. The whole world went through this trauma, right? Of this pandemic. Leadership the leadership that is needed right now is not that kind of Stephen Harper strong leadership. Trauma needs some sort of support and a little bit of compassion. And unfortunately, this macho, this Randy Savage macho man or macho man Randy Savage type of leadership is not what we need right now. And I just wonder if either of you think that that is going to somehow be not on the agenda, but kind of being, be an undercurrent. No. Great. I mean, has, has just, our politics. I just did ever... all that talking for nothing. No, no, you, no. I think you, I think you, <laughs> no, not at all for nothing. I think you made a, a good case politics. for what we need. Oh, okay. <laughs> but I don't think we'll have it. I mean, oh, okay. when has our politics ever been trauma informed? Ooh, good question. Uh, we don't do trauma informed I mean, politics. Never. Um, I think, yeah, I think Erica, you make a good point, but, and I think, I think, you know, if we're looking for someone who's going to show a bit of empathy, it's not Aaron O'Toole trying to do a glamour shot in the fucking front of his platform. Ew, ew, geriatric men's health. (laughs) Weirdest issue of Zoomer ever. What are, what are we doing? I think Trudeau will try to show that. I don't know that people will necessarily buy it or people who pay more attention won't buy it, but like the average voter may. And I think if anyone does it in a sort of more organic and meaningful way, it will be sing, but you know, he's working with the bias of him being quote unquote, a socialist and racism. Yeah. I mean, 
I think that's why he's, but, but drawing from that, from saying is, is that why he's basically the most popular leader? I think he's just more relatable or, or he's, Trudeau is very charismatic. Like when you see him in person, he can like make you feel like you're the only person there type of thing, whatever. But like, I think people actually, I get a more of an impression that Singh is just a generally more likable person. You know, he seems more relaxed. He, he seems a little bit, he comes a little bit more from like the Obama. Because he seems more compassionate. That is my point. And, and, and he's, he's cool. like a little funny. He gets he gets the joke a little bit. Yeah, he's yeah. Like, he he's like a cool guy. Yeah, he's a cool guy. Oh, I hate that this just came down to oh, which candidate would you like to have a beer with? No, but it, but it, but that's that's extraordinarily powerful. We don't it love is. it, especially if you're if you're dialed into the issues. But the fact is, it it, it resonates with a lot of people, and, and it does matter. I mean, because we're humans. And, yeah. and we want that human connection, and even though it becomes weaponized, obviously, by partisans and it becomes faked by partisans. But uh, it still matters for a lot of people. And I think that need for a human connection is like exacerbated right now in the middle of this pandemic when so many of us have been isolated for so long. Which brings yeah. me back to the original point. <laughs> so I don't I don't think that it's going to be a driver, but like. or a No, 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 no. I just I, I just think, think it's just an up. undercurrent of leadership in general. Yeah. And, um, you know, the conservatives love to bring back the ghost of Stephen Harper. Why is Stephen Harper visible when Aaron O'Toole is leader also? Like, are they all trying to throw him under the bus or because, you know, conservatives eat their young. I mean, Andrew Shear is noticeably absent from like any sort of conversation about the conservatives. Yeah, that's true. Well, Stephen Harper, though, I mean, the liberals like bringing up Stephen Harper because he's the boogeyman and leader. Like, I don't think it's going to work. I think people are kind of over it. And and yet that's it worked for them before. But I I don't think it will work with O'Toole because I think he's sufficiently different. There are moments where he steps in it a little bit. The uh, the the conscience rights when it comes to abortion was one of those moments. And it, it does paint him a little bit like Harper. But again, I don't think sufficiently that it's going to dog them in the way people think it will. No, Even though I abort- do think we should be talking about, I mean, I do think abortion should be, um, I mean, it is an issue, especially when it comes to access and, and referral rights and so on and so forth. But he, O'Toole clarified today clumsily and late, but that he supports the quote unquote balance of the conscience rights of doctors, but a mandate for them to refer people to services. So that's the, that's their position on it. I actually think this is a pretty important election, even though it's an election I don't want. And the reason is, is because it really does set up the chessboard or the board for, you know, our, you know, what Canada is going to become post-pandemic. Like, what does post-pandemic Canada look like? What do we want? How do our, how are our values espoused in policies? What are our values? What do we want? Like, I think those questions, and I know media won't do this because it's media, Mm. but I do have one thing that I don't think we're talking about that we need to talk about. And that's the future of work. And in terms of this, uh, work from home versus coming to the office, the hybrid model. Like, that's one thing that I think is really important and looming that I've heard nothing about. 
So that's an issue that I think that I would like to at least get y'all's opinions on. I mean, I mean, the only thing I have to say about that, well, well, sorry, two things. One is that there has been a number of articles online that talk about how mental health is the next frontier in the workplace. And I think that, you know, the NDP is talking about a mental health strategy and whatever. And, you know, Erica, you're talking about leader empathy as a leader. And I think that's going to be increasingly important in the workplace. The second thing is that the conservatives are currently the only party that seem to recognize this new work reality in terms of their plan for housing and the federal uh, properties and how they want to turn 15% of those into affordable housing. It's a recognition that these federal assets are just going to be sitting there empty. And so with fewer people in the office, we can offload, we can one, either offload these assets or two, turn them into something more productive. Well, yeah. And my question is, who is going to opt to work from home and who is going to opt to go into the office? Mm-hmm. How does that affect the way our cities run? How does that affect transportation? How does that affect yep. real estate and affordability and housing? Who Who's going to go into the office and how does that affect? Or how, who's going to be forced to go into or the forced office? To, well, who and how does that affect? the distribution of labor. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, I think those are very important questions. Mm-hmm. This is looming right now. It just seems like that's another sort of self-selection based on um, a, a structure that is run by like old people who yeah. believe that if they don't see you working, then you're not working. Yeah. Or who want to produce software that is going to surveil you. Exactly. Right. Yeah. I think that, you know, one thing that no one's really paying attention to is a company like Shopify, which is now work from home first. And so a number of jobs that would have been, you know, here in Ottawa or in Toronto or Montreal, they're now, those positions are now open to people who work wherever, as long as they work in North America or within a specific time zone. They'll take whoever the best, literal best person for the job. So that we're also like losing those jobs for a Canadian company, right? Like, right. I'll also note on the on the work future of work front, the Conservatives are the only party that are talking about worker ownership. Believe it or not. <laughs> yes. Yes. That's true. Talking about it through yeah. um, employee stock ownership programs, which exist yeah. in the. United Kingdom have since the 70s and exist in the U.S. or sorry, uh, U.S. since the 70s and the U.K. since David Cameron, I think roughly 2014. Uh, there's a lot of debate to have about ESOPs and versus co-ops and different models, but the conservatives are actually talking about a worker ownership plan as part of their pro-worker uh, or quote-unquote pro-worker program. And it's stunning to me that the NDP doesn't own that space. Total, total own goal. Yeah. The NDP are too busy trying to look electable by looking more conservative. So they're afraid of their own friggin' policies and their own friggin' stances. And I'm sorry, I can't, I can't, I can't trust a party that doesn't trust itself. There's, there's just no like big, hairy, audacious goals in any of these like platforms or announcements so far. And like, that's the kind of thing that will get people excited and will help turn people out to, to the polls, really. Yeah, I mean, I, I've been saying this before. 
The NDP needs to decide if it's a socialist party or not. I know there are socialists within the party. People like Matthew Green, people like Leah Gazan, yeah. who to me are, are examples of the sort of NDP MPs and candidates that yeah. I want to see. Same. They're unabashed, proud socialists. Uh, I, I'd like to see more of that. But the NDP, I think, is a little bit scared of that. And if ever there was an election to run as a socialist and wear it on your sleeve, it'd be this one. And mm-hmm. I, I don't see that yet. Maybe it'll come out in the debates. I don't know. I, I certainly hope it does, but I haven't seen it yet. All right. I think that does it for our election kickoff. You know, we'll be doing something like this. Maybe not with David. Maybe with David. <laughs> wow. My every week, hangs every in the week balance. or something. I don't know. Um, anyway, find us on social media, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. And uh, I think that does it. So we'll, uh, we'll talk to you soon. Bye. Adios, friends. Thank you.